You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is November 24th, 2020, and I'm here with my good friend and fellow classmate at George Mason University, David Perchicko. Dave, thanks for coming on with me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Pete. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, taking a little bit of a trip down memory lane, but then focusing on where all this stuff leads us to, because many of the same tensions and turbulations that we faced when we started our careers of looking at the collapsing of a system and trying to understand that, maybe hitting a little too close to home now and, and hitting here, but it's the same kind of thing. So before we get there, uh, you attended Northern Michigan uh, because you had a passion for the outdoors and the environment. And how did you find your way to economics? Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, I was from the Chicago area and, and my friends when I was graduating high school, the ones who went to college, they're all going into engineering and like heading off to University of Illinois and places like that. And I've always had a special spot for the North country, uh, the upper Midwest. And uh, so that sense of place has always been important to me. Uh, And the reason why I I picked uh, Northern Michigan University is because I wanted to go into chemistry and they had a double major chemistry and water science. Yeah. There's no other program that, that I looked into that had something like that. And it combined, you know, laboratory and outdoors. And I thought this is great. So I come up to the upper peninsula and have my first semester here, fall of 1980. And I take Economics 101 at 8 o'clock in the morning, and it changed everything. Uh, the professor, Neil Carlson, uh, other professors in the department were using the Hain textbook, The Economic Way of Thinking. Uh, but this professor used Heilbronner and Thoreau, The Making of Economic Society, mm-hmm. which had like an economic history component to it. But we also learned supply and demand, opportunity cost, and all that. And by the end of that, that fall semester, I dropped my double major. I announced I'm, I'm majoring in economics, and I never looked back from that point. Uh, I took micro principles the next semester, and the textbook was Elshin and Allen's Exchange in Production. Yeah. And uh, I took that with, with Phil May, who was a student, a UCL, UCLA student. Of Elshin. And so here I'm learning about property rights and incentives and this type of thing. And I thought that's just how economists thought. <laughs> I thought that's how, you know, it's 1980, but I, I thought that's how, all, you know, I'm learning this, that that's how economists think. And uh, the following semester I had macro principles and the professor Tom Holmstrom used uh, Gwartney and Stroop. So I'm learning public choice. And I'm thinking, this is, I wasn't even thinking about it. This is just the way economists think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then I, for intermediate micro, I was back with Phil May and he used Hirschleifer's textbook. So I got a really good training, I think, in, 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 in microeconomics, certainly, 
uh, and the whole property rights type of, you know, basic institutions type of analysis combined with public choice. And, and I, I, was, I was thrilled with it. And uh, I also had a course by Howard, Howard Swain, who was another Elshin student. And uh, it was called Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. I had that in my junior year. And the main book was Schumpeter's book by the same title. Mm -hmm. And it was in that course, I wrote a paper for it. The only paper I wrote as an undergraduate. And uh, he, he's, yeah, I, I, instead, of taking, instead of taking the final exam, he said you could write a, write a paper. And uh, so I did that. And I asked him, what, what should I write about? What are topics to explore? And uh, he said, you know what? No one's looked at, no one's done a comparison of, of Schumpeter's market socialism to Langas, Oscar Langas. He said, why don't you look into that? And, and I did, and I thought, this, this is fascinating. And it was through that paper and that exploration that I discovered Don Lavoie in the uh, Journal of Libertarian Studies back in the old days when, when Rothbard uh, had... Because he published that, what, 81 or 80-something? Yeah, 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 uh, on, uh, Don's article on, on the socialist calculation debate. And uh, I, I had discovered Mises before that. I, I came across his economic policy book at a uh, bookstore in the Loop in Chicago. And that's, that was my first exposure to Austrians, that simple little book. But, but I really got into it with uh, Lavoie's piece in the, in the JLS. And that's when I started looking into, and this is before the internet and all of that. Right. So it was hard to look into graduate programs. Where do you get the information from? I, I, and I'm not sure where I got the information about George Mason's program in the center. It might have been in an ad in the JLS or, or something. I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, I, I knew this, this is someone who I really want to study under. My, my professors were grooming me for UCLA. <laughs> yeah, right? And, uh, and, and that's where I originally had planned and hoped to go. But when I discovered George Mason and the early Center for the Study of Market Processes and they brought Buchanan and Tulloch with the, with the Public Choice Center. I thought this, and it's a brand new PhD program there. My professors were a little bit hesitant. Sure. I was all gung-ho for George Mason. Um, and, uh, and when I got to Mason, I never looked back uh, either. I should say more things about my undergraduate education. In Psych 101, I was exposed to Thomas Kuhn and Paradigms. Uh, because the professor taught psych as a series of competing paradigms, Freudianism, behaviorism, humanistic psych, and all that. I was exposed to Habermas in a social and political philosophy course. So I had this great background, you know, a, a nice uh, background that, that complemented, in, in some ways, complemented my economics. And, uh, and, and I ended up going off to George Mason. But I didn't really know what I was doing, Pete. Um, I was a first-year college student. I really didn't know what graduate school was. I had applied and got, gotten accepted. 
think how foolish this might sound. I applied and got accepted into Chicago, UCLA, Florida State, Clemson, Illinois. Uh, and I can't recall my status at NYU nor at Auburn. I applied to both of them, but I, I, I can't remember uh, what, what the final result was. But here's the thing. I'm getting letters from these places saying I've been accepted and we have money for you and, or an assistantship. Chicago didn't offer me a, a penny. Um, I was just ha thrilled to get in. Yeah. But uh, the other schools had assistantships for me. And I'm waiting to hear from George Mason. I got an acceptance letter from them. But I'm waiting to hear if they're going to give me a tuition break or an assistantship or anything okay. like that. And I talked to Don. By the way, I never visited any any of these schools. I, I I never did campus visits. I didn't even know about that possibility. So I'm talking to Don on the phone, and he's excited about me and and all of that. And uh, I said I need to know because I got these other programs that I applied to, and they have deadlines. And Don's kind of hemming and hawing and apologizing. And here's the foolish thing, in a way. I turned down every one of those schools because <laughs> their deadlines came up. Right. I turned down every single one of them waiting to get that final phone call from Don saying, you know, we have an assistantship for you, which I did. It was during spring break up here and I was so thrilled yeah. to, uh, you know, to receive that message from him. It's funny, you know, um, first of all, I mean, it's, it's, it speaks <clears throat> tremendously to the education that you received at Northern that you can remember to this day your psychology class and how it introduced you in a social and political thought class. I have a, a, a similar uh, kind of experience with my undergraduate at Grove City, and I always wonder whether or not you know, kids going through school have the same kind of series of things that, that their professors were so uh, impactful on them or whatever. So my, uh, I, I, it wasn't Kuhn, but it was Michael Polanya. I had a, I had a teacher in my first year, uh, Reed Davis. Um, he teaches at the university, uh, university in Seattle now, and I owe him tremendously because um, we had to, um, uh, you know, we had to read the standard stuff in the first semester. And then the second semester, we started out by being exposed to things like Polanyi's Science, Faith, and Society. He was a man of deep religion, Reed Davis, but he was also a person of science. And so it was this interaction between faith and science yeah, yeah. that was a big part of his study. And I had that in the criticism of scientism that comes from Polanyi. I heard that before I heard that. And because Polanyi has another book, which you made us read too, called The Study of Man. And, and, and so I had to read those two things before I was even reading Hayek or, or whatever these things. And so when I started reading Hayek, it sort of made complete sense because Reed had already alerted me to these other things. And <clears throat> anyway, I just have a bunch of different professors that had this huge impact on me in this regard, and, I, and I'm pretty sure none of my other classmates had the same reaction, but, and I can remember it like it was yesterday, the things that they taught me and what they were stressing. Yeah, and it's, it's a shame that other students, and, and I try to impress this upon my own, 
you know, they, they have to take gen ed courses and, and that type of thing. And, and I've always told them, take these courses seriously. Take an anthropology, a cultural anthropology course, or take a sociology 101 course. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I tell them, and I'm, I'm not, you know, making this up, but I remember a lot of things that I've learned, and I've took those two courses and, of course, others. And, and a lot of that has stuck with me. And I, I think it's also important that students get some sense of perhaps contrast yeah. to economics, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and find potential weaknesses in their own field of study or uh, possible even greater strengths in their own field of study, economics being exposed to these other uh, disciplines. So, so I'm, it doesn't surprise me at all. I remember you talking about Polanyi very early on and, and having read him as an undergraduate. So, and books, The Study of Man and sci- uh, the Lesser Known Science, Faith, yeah. and Society, nice thin books that have a real solid message. And I would suggest students read those two first and then tackle personal uh, knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So what's fascinating to me, and, and this is maybe a little insider baseball, but people should look up these references, is that, you know, in your, your talk about your undergraduate education, and you wrote a paper on Schumpeter and socialism later on. You wrote your very first paper, I think, is a review essay of Polkinghorne's uh, stuff on methodology of the social sciences. Oh boy, right? you, you remember that? Or you've yes, done your You've done your homework. No, no, I remember that because remember I was the editor of the, yes. the journal at the time. But then you also wrote a paper on the potlatch system. Yeah, which and went nowhere. Yeah, I understand that, but you wrote it, and 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 early on, I mean, maybe first year graduate school, you know, yeah. you were already taking these things, so it, and and merging them with economics. It was, you know, in each one of these cases. So, and the the one last thing is I want to share with you is my also my impression. I decided to go to George Mason because of Don as well, and it was because of that journal Libertarian Studies piece. And it's interesting because, um. Hayek eventually had the same reaction on me that Don did, but I actually read Don in more detail than I read Hayek at the time when I was an undergraduate, because when I first read The Road to Serfdom, I wasn't too impressed by it, because <laughs> I was wow. a guardian, you know, but, yeah. uh, but the reality was is that I had a great undergraduate teacher who was a polemicist not a scholar. He, you know, flew and gave chicken dinner talks and, you know, he was, but he was powerful. He was a great speaker. He could rile up a room, especially if you listen to him. And then he exposed us to Milton Friedman, but not Milton Friedman the way you were exposed to Milton Friedman, which I want to come back to in a second. But um, he exposed us to free to choose, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, capitalism and freedom, Milton Friedman and the Newsweek columns, you know, so Friedman again. And then you read Mises, and Mises, you know, is this powerful thinker, but he's not in a constant dialogue with other scholars, right? right. So it, it's just like this powerful magnum opus that he's, like, throwing at you, sure. and it's like trying to drink out of a fire hose when you're 18, 19 years old <laughs> or whatever. So then I come along Lavoy, and it was the first – time I read economics, this is maybe my own fault, but first time I read economics in where the professors in my other disciplines 
philosophy because I was a joint major philosophy and economics, but also I took law classes and, and, and you know, the, the pre-law class because I thought I was maybe going to go do that. Um, and I had a great teacher in that. Um, Lavoie was the first one that was a scholar, constant dialogue with other yes. people that he was arguing against, including Marx and yes. everyone else. And so I was completely blown away. I was like, oh, my God, I want to be like him. Like, I want to be a scholar like him. I don't want to be Senholtz and pugnacious, right? I, I mean, obviously, I'd like to be Milton Friedman because that's better than John Kenneth Galbraith. And so if I could be Milton Friedman beating John Kenneth Galbraith, that's better, right? Sure. But I, 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 I kind of knew that Friedman was specially gifted. So, you know, and, and right. Galbraith was specially gifted. Yeah. And so unless you're a freedman and you try to tackle Galbraith, you're in trouble because, yeah. you know, he has a better command of the way to use words. And so yeah. what was available was this Lavoie kind of approach of like, I'm going to really do a deep dive and weigh all the arguments and do all of that. And I kind of became convinced about that to such an extent that I had a similar experience as you. As I, yeah. I I uh, went to George Mason and uh, basically um, my tuition waiver became a fellowship after I was there. <laughs> oh, yes. Because <laughs> like Rich Fink thought like, man, this poor kid's going to starve to death. <laughs> right. But I went there because I wanted to study with Lavoie. I mean, because yeah. that was like at the master's feet. Um, and again, how weird it was is my choices at the end of the day were between going to the Center for Libertarian Studies because Murray Rothbart was offering a series of lectures. Right, right. I go to graduate school. Right. You made oh, the right choice, Pete. You yeah, mean. I go to graduate school around this. And I, I told this story the other day. I'm not sure if I, I told you this. This might be the first time it's on print. Uh, on, uh, but, you know, I was weighing options, and Rosemary and I went up to New York. Uh, and her best, the, the woman who was her maid of honor in our wedding was a graduate student in New York living in the East Village. So we stayed in the East Village and I went around, saw what NYU was like and everything like that. And then I went to the new school because one of the things I hoped that I might do is maybe I'll go to the new school and I'll be like Lavoie and I'll be able to study Marxism and I'll know it so well that I'll be able to like, you know, right, challenge right. it or whatever. That was my thinking at the time. I mean, then that's not every graduate student that goes to economics thinks like that, but that's, that's how I thought. And I went over to a lecture by Anwar Sheck. Yeah. Who does the trans tries to fix Bombavrik's you know uh -huh. transformation yeah, yeah. problem, and this is in 1982 or 83 something like that, right? And we're sitting there, I guess 83, and I'm sitting there, I'm listening to the lecture, and about five minutes into the lectures, my eyes glaze over, and I'm like, "WTF is this guy talking about? Right, right. He's he's not going to be able to solve this." So I decided I can't put up with that for four years. Well, about two years ago. I was at a conference and he was the keynote speaker and he was going to talk about the transformation problem. And I turned to the person next to me, I go, you know, 35 years ago, I sat and listened to this lecture and I decided not to go study with him. And I said, now I want to see if like, you know, he started talking. Right, about did he solve the problem? Yeah, yeah. He started about, about five minutes into his talk, I learned, I leaned over to the guy and said, I made the right decision. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Which is probably my own fault, again, for not understanding it. But it was interesting because I don't think you and I were that unique. I think that George Mason had a kind of weird vibe at that time in the beginning of its program that people went there. I mean, Jerry also got into Chicago, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Steve yeah, got yeah. into Yale. Um, Steve got into Yale. 
Yeah, Steve, I think, got into Yale. Oh. Uh, but maybe no money, right? But he got yeah, in. Sure. Uh, Jerry got into Chicago, but they didn't give any money. I don't think they gave money to the first-year students back then. Uh-huh. Um, if we re- if we remember correctly, is that they you had to get through their exams, right? Their right. small on certain exams. But uh, when earlier on, before I started, so this is the last I'll tell about myself. But, but earlier on, I remember this thing about what economics is. Is because again, when you're an undergraduate, you only know the economics you're being taught. You don't sure. really, know. and you know that maybe don't people don't agree with it, but you don't have a sense mm-hmm. of the disagreement, right? So I was teaching tennis, and someone that I knew that was involved with tennis was involved with Rutgers, and they said, you know, you should just keep teaching tennis and go to graduate school at night. You know, they have the classes at night. You can do economics. So they set up me to be able to talk to someone at Rutgers about their graduate program. And the person asked me, what would you like to work on? And I can remember, I said, the metaphysics of liberty. (laughs) And and this economics professor just looked at me. (laughs) Like, like, that was the conversation. It didn't go anywhere. And I can remember walking out and saying, boy, why doesn't that guy understand what economics is about? (laughs) And I'm sure he walked out and said, what is wrong with this kid? You know? And, and so it was fascinating, but in Lavoie, we both found this kind of thing. We both had a similar experience. The idea of getting him to tell us to come there was a very exciting aspect of the whole process. But I want to go back because your teachers were all UCLA Chicago guys. Yeah. And I didn't know that you had Alchin and Allen before you had Hain. So maybe we can That's talk right. a little bit about in, in that. Fact, That's fascinating. Yeah. In, in fact, uh, I, I, so like I said, the 101 was Heilbronner and Thoreau, the, the textbook. And I didn't have the Hain textbook in any of my undergraduate courses. But I became a tutor uh, my junior and senior year. And I was tutoring economics and 101 students who did have professors using the Hain book. That's when I decided I should read this textbook too to get a sense of how these courses are being taught and what what these students are finding, the emphasis that they're finding, so I could tutor them better. So, uh, yeah, I I, I basically came across Hain as as a tutor. and like I said, you know, I was raised in this UCLA property rights, Elshin, uh, Allen type tradition. Uh, you had mentioned Milton Friedman. And, I was uh, we, say, you also were trained in monetarism. Well, yes. You and, Milton Friedman's monetary framework before you went to graduate school. Yeah. Um, you know, we had in our principals courses once a week, the free to choose videos. Uh, which I really enjoyed, yeah. And, and and I read the Free to Choose book, and you know I, I was a little confused because here Reagan rises to power, and there's talk about free market this and that, and maybe for a couple weeks I thought, free, uh, uh, you know, Reagan did have something to do with free markets, yeah. um, but but yeah, I did read on my own uh, the Robert Gordon's edited book Milton Friedman's monetary framework and that's where I really understood I I, I, of course I was exposed to monetarism in my intermediate macro course but going into that book and those essays and debates it's a series of debates Paul David sits in there and and others and uh, and 
I kind of surprised myself because I, I felt I could understand the book. I could understand the debates as an undergraduate, not being guided through that, that particular uh, analysis. And uh, that, that had an effect on me. How valuable do you think t uh, being a tutor was? To uh, uh, very valuable. Yeah. Um, because I, I think it, it set the stage for my teaching career because here I had to articulate students would have questions. Most of it was basic questions, not quite understanding opportunity cost or whatever it might be, economic profit versus accounting profit. Um, and I found on the spot, without notes of my own, I had to try to clearly articulate to students. Uh, first, I had to understand what their question was and, and then be able to provide some type of answer to that. And I, I think tutoring as an undergraduate had, had a big impact on, on my long run, you know, formation as, as a teacher itself. I was really glad to have that opportunity. You know, I worked in the slop line in the uh, cap school cafeteria my, my first uh, year or two. And, and it felt really good to be in that setting that, that, that engaged in thoughts with other students and uh, I, I knew that I knew by the end of my sophomore year that mm -hmm. I wanted to go to graduate school Indeed. before I became a tutor. Yeah. And I, I did. And the reason why I wanted to go to grad school was simply because I, I, I enjoyed economics so much. I wanted to study it as long and as far as I could. Yeah. I, I, I didn't have any pretense of I'm going to become a professor or this or that. I just wanted to study the discipline. Yeah. And, and it wasn't until probably my senior year that I thought, no, and what am I going to do with the PhD? I'll become a professor. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so there's that. You know, Rothbard, um, I, I had, like I said, I discovered Mises almost accidentally on a bookshelf. So can I ask you a question real quick about the yeah. monetarism stuff, though? Yeah, sure. So since, since you were learning the monetary framework, by the way, I, I forgot that you told me that you worked in the cafeteria. I, you know, I went to college to play sports. And my first college I went to to play sports at, um, I was getting money to be there. Uh, not a lot, but, you know, enough that it was kind of, you know, it was important that I keep doing it. But I had jobs, quote unquote jobs. And they were given by the athletic department, but it depended a lot on your performance. <laughs> so in the beginning, my job was a very cushy job. And then, you know, I did some things. I got hurt and I wasn't doing stuff. The coach was kind of pissed off at me. And I show up at the cafeteria and I used to just say, be able to alert someone in the back when the milk was going out. That originally was right. my first job is right. I would sit there and as I'd see students doing it, sure. I'd, I'd say, Hey, the milk needs to be changed. I didn't change the milk. I told someone else to do it. Right. They told me I've been reassigned. I'm in a cast and I get reassigned. They make me the, in the dish room. And I had pretty good hand-eye coordination at that time, and I could do things. So they actually made me be the dish loader because I had to, you know, right. grab like five dishes and like load them like this. And then when I got a little better, I got taken off the line and doing some other job. Then I got – I didn't do as well, and they put me back on the line. And so when I got to Grove City and transferred, I wanted some extra cash. 
And they said, like, well, you know, what can you do? And this is before I was playing any sports again at Grove City. And so I was like, well, I have experience as a dishwasher. <laughs> and so my first semester at Grove City, I also worked loading dishes again, you know, to right, get extra right. money. And uh, you, didn't, you didn't tutor, Pete? Did you I, never, I never tutored until I was in graduate school, but it, it changes your life when you have to teach. And that, that's, I want to talk to you. I mean, we never would have expected that we would have been involved with the Hain book. So maybe we right. should talk a little bit about that at, later. But yeah. we, both, we both use the Hain book as a touchstone for teaching that very first introduction for yeah. 20 years before we ever were involved with it at all. Yeah. So, yeah. But I want to ask you about the monetarism thing because, again, you had very good teachers Right. Uh, and yes. your classmates, you should point out, I mean, your classmates went on to graduate school and did yes. well themselves and stuff. And so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, you were the only one going to graduate school. There was a right. core of people around there before you and after you. And um, so how did the Austrian stuff hit you when you first read about, like, say, Austrian business cycle theory? Right. And about Friedman. And now you have to adjudicate that with these other things. Yeah. How did that do? Can you recapture that at yeah, all? Yeah, I, I could try. I, uh, like I, I knew, like I said before, I, I, I became knowledgeable of the Austrians basically through the criticism in the problems of socialism. And, you know, also as an undergraduate, I had read, uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom. I had read, I loved reading uh, Mises' Socialism yeah, book. Great book yeah. um, and so this is, this is my, that was my understanding of the Austrians. And this idea of knowledge transmission through the price system and all of that. And I didn't read, I wasn't exposed to, I didn't discover on my own Austrian business cycle theory. So the, the, the macro portion of it, uh, I, I just wasn't all that aware of. So I'm, but I'm kind of like juggling balls a little bit as an undergraduate because I got the property rights stuff, the public choice, the Austrian notion of knowledge in the, in the market pricing system, the problems of socialist planning. And then I got this Friedman type monetarism. Yeah. So all, all these things are going on at, at once. All right. Um, and, uh, oh, I, I wanted to mention Rothbard. I, I, I don't know how I discovered Rothbard, but I remember looking in the card catalog, the old card catalog, <laughs> library, and looking up to see if, if there's anything by Rothbard in there. And I had heard, you know, he's got this vision of, you know, anarcho-capitalism and all that. And here in the shelves was power and market. And I remember going, pulling the book off the shelf, sitting cross-legged on, on the floor and reading the first chapter and being disappointed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> My, I had a level of excitement and a, a quick disappointment early on with Rothbard's, you know, case for, for you know, pure market. Uh, uh, I, have a, I have a slightly different one because... I read Man, Economy, and State, and then I read Four New Liberty. And Four New Liberty, I was completely, at that time, I was struggling on how you take notations in your books. <laughs> so uh, someone told me about highlighters. 
So I didn't understand that you had to be adjudicating on the highlighter. So uh, I'd end up by highlighting a whole page. It was like, sure. right? Okay. So then I would go back and reread and I'd underline in red, you know? And then I decided, okay, well, this is stupid because I'm ruining these books and I don't even know what they're telling me, you know, by doing this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to now read books and wherever there's something I disagree with, I'm going to put underneath it like a wavy line. And that <laughs> right. way I know I, when I come to it, you know, you might know some of this because you've seen some of my books back in graduate school. I mean, I, I, at one time I, I used to put like giant bubble, like emphasis points and stuff. And so yes. anyway, so I read foreign wait, and literary. Wait a minute. I remember when you announced and showed us that you're doing big fat exclamation points. You announced your new method. <laughs> <laughs> I was I didn't know what the hell I was doing still don't but I I read for new liberty and I ran read all the way through the book think about how absurd this is and there's not a single line there's nothing every word I agreed with every word I agreed with so I was like oh my god Rothbard is my you know my my guru right you know Rothbard's the, Mises is convoluted Rothbard is this like you know he tells stories about Joe Dokes and you know the Brooklyn Dodgers and so he's like a normal guy telling us about all this stuff like that and so then I pick up Power and Market and I'll never forget it I think it's on page nine when he dismisses uh, national defense like just out of hand like this right and I remember thinking it can't be that easy <laughs> Right. And so that's what devastated me because I went from, you know, reading Foreign to Liberty, which I thought was the best polemic. It's so much better in my mind at that time than Free to Choose or yeah. The Road to Serfdom, The Leaker, Hayek is yeah. leaks all over the place. Hayek, uh, you know, Rockford has this, this wonderful piece. And, and Man, Economy and State taught me so much about economics. What I didn't understand in Mises man, economy, and state made clear for me. And I still yeah. think that's the case. I, I, I mean, I, I think it's a really, anyway, sorry, but go ahead. No, no, no. It, it's interesting that you say page nine of Power and Market, because I, I should say one thing first. I have never, I have not read For New Liberty cover to cover. Yeah. I've only poked my head into it a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's not what, what inspired me with Rothbard. I was more, more interested, not so much in a, in a, even back then, not so much in a, a uh, an ideological program, yeah. but, but theoretical, you know, what economics could be. And you said page nine or whatever it is from Power and Market. See, that was the chapter I had read. There's this whole case against national defense. It could all be provided private. And that was just like you said, you were disappointed when you read. Well, that's the first thing of Rothbard that I read. <laughs> Yeah, and I can remember, you know, Ethics of Liberty came out right around like when we when I was starting to be ready to go to graduate school or whatever. And I can remember thinking like, you know, being so excited that finally Rothbard was going to have another book, you sure. know. And then I came up with this phrase, which is a terrible, because I benefited tremendously from them. But I'm, I'm sure you've heard me say this, which is Freeman articles with footnotes. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and I was like, this is what we got, you know, like right. that. And then I read the Jer Jerome Chichilli book and I was like, you know, busting up about all of it because I was like, you know, so oh, that's yeah. one, that again is why Lavoie all of a sudden becomes someone different because he was taking these ideas seriously, but he was treating them seriously enough as a theoretical system and as something in the grand debate over yep. market, tradition, market and plan and yeah, what the yeah. alternative is and everything. And so, yeah.
Yeah. We have a question for you, though, about your monetarism. <laughs> so, again, this is a little bit of a time blur, but I can remember you and I, this actually might come from Alchin, okay, but via Hayek as well, which is I can remember you and I in a market process seminar in which Don Boudreau, as a visiting student from Auburn, is presenting a paper that he did with Randy Holcomb in which they are looking at price level adjustments. And I can remember you and I saying, what is a price level? Mm -hmm. you know, talk to me about relative prices. It's relative prices that impinge upon yeah. economic decision making. Right. No one makes a decision on the price level. Talk about that. Now, that's an extremely Austrian, but also Alchin point, yeah. I think. And, um, and, and I'm trying to remember what year that must have been, because I keep on thinking it's early, but maybe it's much later. No, 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 Pete. I, you know, I forgot all about that, but, but you've, you've uh, stirred my memory here. And it was early on because, uh, because Don Boudreau wasn't there as a professor. That's right. Which he would later be. He was there as, as a grad student. And it wasn't his job talk. It was just a regular no. seminar. Yeah. It and you know what that also, yeah. yeah, that also reminds me, Ed Dolan's book. Yeah. Remember that one? Well, I yeah, can't yeah. remember the title now. The Foundations of Modern Austrian, Modern Austrian Economics. Yeah. I somehow got my hands on that as an undergraduate. So yeah. I was exposed to a little bit, the beginnings of some Austrian macro theory. Lachman had an article in there. Yeah, but that also would have introduced you to Rothbard. Because Rothbard yeah. stands out in those volumes in a way that he does it later on in yeah, you know, the and, literature. And, yeah. and how that book really resonated with me. Yeah. Was, I, that was a... That was a very important. Yeah. Dolan talks about Kuhn and paradigms in that book. Yeah. So it fits right in. And it fit right in. And that's when I, that was the point where I understood that Austrian economics is not just some verbal <laughs> variant of free market economics and all of that. That Austrian economics is, you know, or certainly at least appears to be some type of different and emerging paradigm. And that really excited me. And you know what, it, that reminds me, when I finally got to campus at George Mason, the first person I met was not Don. And I became Don's research right. assistant for, for his two books in 80, 84 and 85. The first person I meet is Rich Fink. And I remember being, I sat down in his office, I was nervous. And we're talking, and I think he's trying, he was simply trying to get a, you know, an intellectual feel for me. You know, where is this kid coming from? Right. What's, you know, Northern Michigan University, what's that, right? And I remember saying, and it's, and it's kind of sounded stupid, and, and in a way I wanted it to sound a little silly. I said, he, he said, what's Austrian economics? He asked me a question like that. And I said, the way I look at it, is like standard economics sees, and this is the paradigm thing, sees the earth as the center of the solar system, if not the universe. And the Austrians are acting under a different paradigm. It's a paradigm shift. And they see, say, the sun as the center of the solar system and the universe. And Richie said immediately, he said, as far as he's concerned, Austrians don't know where the center of the universe is. <laughs> and bang, 
I remember being floored by that and thinking on the spot, I'm at the right place. I made the right decision. Because there's a- Do you remember this? We're out for, we're out uh, for, um, uh, after a Lachman visit and we go to a Austrian restaurant that was in Northern Virginia or a German restaurant, maybe it's in Northern Virginia. And uh, you ask- Lockman, right? Uh, if the if the world is kaleidoscopic, who's turning the kaleidoscope? Yeah. And Lockman just turns to you and says, "Ah, that is the question." <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> but and, but my I other said it with a cigar in his mouth. Too. Yeah, the other funny line that night was Lavoy thinking that now this was a, an entree into more and more philosophical conversations, right. Lachman says to him, Mr. Chairman, now is the time to drink beer, not discuss philosophy. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I remember falling in love with Lachman at that point. Oh, well. yeah. yeah. Um, so I did want to, I, I wanted to ask you about the center. I'm getting lost a little bit in, in, in details because there's so much of our, I feel like talking to you or Emily or Steve in some sense is that we're like siblings that were raised in the same household, but that have all different relationships with our parents. Yes. So it's yeah, kind of a cool. weird kind of thing because we're all students of Don and we all work with Don in our own way. And we had, you know, our, our ups and downs, mostly ups, but some yeah. downs within interacting with him and, and all of that. But the center for study of market processes to me still represents this kind of ideal environment of learning uh, in which there was a tremendous egalitarian approach to the way teachers interacted with us. In fact, I can remember Rich Fink sitting down with me. We, I shared an office with him. And so, cause he was in one side of the office, I was in the other side of this broom closet office. And he, I remember him asking me, uh, so how are we doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, are we meeting your expectations as a student or are we exceeding them, falling? You know, you came here, you went out of your way to do this. What are we doing? And no one at NYU ever asked that to the student, right. you know? And, and, and those guys all thought about that. Now, again, they were all assistant professors, but think about it. You have Don, Jack, Richie, uh, Victor Vanberg, DiLorenzo even. Yeah. They're all there and they're in this soup. And then you add Boudreaux and Selgin into the mix later yep. on. Um, and then, of course, you and I were very lucky. We had Mike Alexiev, who was not, but he was very important to our education. Uh, we had, uh, I would actually add Kevin Greer into that mix yes. in a weird way because he was <coughs> an econometrician and he put up with our our stuff. Let, let me jump in for yeah. a second and, and say that, that uh, Mike Alexiev and, and Kevin Greer were really important for our development because yeah. they kept us honest. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, and, and especially with, with Mike, because remember, we're, we're running around criticizing equilibrium and all of that. And we, you know, we're, we knew half of what we were saying. But Mike Alexiev taught us general equilibrium theory. And, and he said, you know, no, we, we'd have some criticism. He'd say, no, we handle this with convergence or stability. And, and, and we needed to understand 
what we were talking about before we could even start criticizing it. And I think, I think Mike was terribly important in our development as Austrians uh, for that reason. And, and, and his Soviet economics course was, uh, was really yeah, good. I mean, we had him, I mean, we had him for multiple classes. Yeah. And multiple bites of the apple on that and, and also directed readings on this. But I'm thinking yes. micro two, he's having us not only, you know, work through Varian, which is a workmanlike book of standard mm -hmm. microeconomics, but we're reading Silverberg on the structure of economic uh, yeah. arguments. You know, we had supposedly already in the earlier class mastered Henderson and Quant and that kind right. of stuff. You know, Gould and Ferguson, Henderson yeah. and Quant. So our textbooks and everything were pretty standard neoclassical economics. Uh, uh, given at the time, I mean, yeah. within, a, within a few short periods of time after we were there, you know, Kreps and the whole game theory revolution right. takes off. And at that time, we were learning game theory. It would have been through Victor Vanberg and right. more like the Andy Schotter evolution yeah. of institutions kind of stuff. But I keep on always thinking back to Mike. Mike actually assigned us uh, the Bruce you know, book, was, that little, that little pain in the ass book that's like this big and as dense as you possibly can do. And it's not like he gave us a pass and said like, oh yeah, you don't have to read it or whatever, right? So yeah. Yeah, with that book, I, I look at, we had to learn topology on the fly, Pete. We knew calculus. We had to learn topology, uh, which I never took as an undergraduate. And DeBruce's book is loaded with it. And I struggled through it. I still I pull it off the shelves. And I'll tell you when I pull it off my shelf. When I have a student saying they want to go to grad school in economics, yeah, I pull two books off the shelf. I said, this is what I had, Varian, which no one uses now, right. but Varian. And I said, look at the math in this. And I said, this is what I had. I pull out Debrew and hand it to the student and say, this is what, what I had to go through in my micro two course. And it kind of floors the students. And some will rise to the occasion and say, okay, I have to take more math. Yeah. And some will be turned off. But we got to be honest with our undergraduates who want to go to grad school. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was really high-powered stuff in Alexia's, uh, Mike Alexia's course. He, he was a great teacher. And, yeah. uh, you know, and he, he, I mean, we were very fortunate because he, 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 didn't, he didn't allow us to slide at all. He held us to a higher standard, I think, actually, because we were yeah. critics. But he also uh, gave us space. Like, you'll probably remember this, but he, he let me give a lecture in the class about Abraham Bald and <laughs> the evolution of general equilibrium theory. And I, and I had to, you know, do a history of thought of Abraham right, right. And, and, and Brower's fixed point theorem and like what Bald did to prove existence and, and all that stuff. And I mean, I love that. And, and, if, and if you remember, you and I also tried to tell Greer that we found a fundamental error in econometric theory. You know, I still try to remember what that was. I was certain that there was an error. <laughs> But let's forget that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I remember Kevin, Kevin just laughing at us. Yes, but yeah, but at the same time, he also didn't just say, you know, you guys are idiots or whatever, right? He'd yeah. Say, okay. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, 
please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.